Hello everyone and welcome. I'm Fernando Florido, a GP in the United Kingdom. Some of you have asked me to do some more cardiovascular topics. So today we'll be looking at the NICE guidelines on atrial fibrillation, also known as AF, specifically from a primary care perspective, which were updated as recently as March 2023. However, please note that I'm here to provide information and interpretation of the guidelines, not medical advice. Always use your clinical judgment when treating your patients. If you prefer a video format, there's also a YouTube version of these episodes. The link is in the episode description. By the way, please make sure to stay for the entire episode, as I'll be sharing fictitious clinical cases created by ChatGPT that will illustrate how the guideline is applied in real-life situations. Remember that my summary is a very simplified version of the guideline. I have put links to the full guidance in the episode description. So with that said, let's dive in. Let's start by saying that we are going to address three clinical areas today. The diagnosis, the management and the annual review of a patient with AF. One of the first steps in detecting AF is performing a manual pulse palpation. We should do this if a patient presents with symptoms such as breathlessness, palpitations, syncope or dizziness, chest discomfort or a history of stroke or TIA. If an irregular pulse is detected, the next step is to perform an ECG, which will help confirm the diagnosis. However, in cases where paroxysmal AF is suspected but is undetected by ECG, it may be necessary to offer additional testing with ambulatory ECG monitors, event recorders or other ECG technologies for an appropriate period of time to capture the episodes of AF. Assessing stroke and bleeding risk is crucial in managing AF. To assess stroke risk, we should use the CHATVASC Stroke Risk Score. Evaluating bleeding risk is equally important and we should use the ORBIT Bleeding Risk Score. These two tools will guide decisions regarding anticoagulation therapy. The CHATVASC Score tool gives the following points. One point for congestive heart failure or left ventricular dysfunction. One point for hypertension, that is a blood pressure of 140 over 90 or on treatment. Two points for age of 75 years or older. One point for diabetes. Two points for stroke or TIA. One point for vascular disease, for example, a prior MI, peripheral vascular disease or aortic plaque. One point for the age of 65 to 74 and one point for sex category female. The orbit scoring tool gives two points for a low hemoglobin or hematocrit, which is for men an HB of less than 130 grams per liter or hematocrit of less than 40%, and for women it is a hemoglobin of less than 120 grams per liter or hematocrit of less than 36%. We give two points for a history of bleeding, for example gastrointestinal bleeding or hemorrhagic stroke, and we give one point for age of 74 or more, an eGFR of less than 60, or we also give one point for somebody who is on antiplatelet treatment. A score of two or less is considered low risk, three medium risk, and four or higher high risk. We should see if modifying risk factors for bleeding is possible. This can include addressing uncontrolled hypertension, avoiding concurrent use of aspirin or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, minimizing alcohol consumption and treating reversible causes of anemia. Now let's talk about the management of AF. 
for all people with AF, including paroxysmal AF, we will admit urgently if there are signs and symptoms of hemodynamic instability, such as a rapid pulse greater than 160 beats per minute, and or a low blood pressure, for example, a systolic pressure of less than 90, as well as symptoms like severe dizziness, chest pains, breathlessness, or syncope. We also need to be aware that electrical cardioversion may be recommended if the onset of AF is within 48 hours. Or we should also consider admission if they are unwell due to another serious associated or underlying condition. In new onset AF of less than 48 hours, we will seek urgent secondary care advice to manage both the arrhythmia and the anticoagulation because the latter may involve heparin. And this may also mean sending the patient to the emergency department. It's also important to assess for underlying causes of AF. These can include cardiac causes such as hypertension, valvular heart disease, heart failure and ischemic heart disease. And for this, we will arrange an ECG and consider transthoracic echocardiogram if there's a high risk or suspicion of underlying structural heart disease, such as a heart murmur or functional heart disease, such as heart failure. Respiratory causes such as a chest infection or lung cancer are also possible and we will arrange a chest x-ray if lung pathology is suspected. Systemic causes such as excessive alcohol intake, hypothyroidism, electrolyte depletion, infection or diabetes is also possible. We will use a clinical judgment to determine the need for blood tests such as a full blood count, liver, renal and thyroid function tests, calcium, magnesium and glucose levels. In summary, we will normally do an ECG, a chest X-ray, blood tests and possibly an echocardiogram depending on the circumstances. Once an underlying cause is identified, it is essential to manage it whenever possible. Referral to a cardiologist may be necessary, especially in cases of valvular heart disease or suspected heart failure. However, we will need to refer to a cardiologist for rhythm control that is either pharmacological or electrical cardioversion if the AF has a reversible cause, for example a chest infection, if there is heart failure that is caused or worsened by AF, if there is atrial flutter suitable for ablation, or any other patient for whom rhythm control would be more suitable using our clinical judgment. Looking at the management in primary care, the first thing that we need to do is to assess the stroke and bleeding risks using CHADVASC and ORBIT reviewing and managing any modifiable risk factors for bleeding. We will offer anticoagulation with a direct acting oral anticoagulant, also known as a DOAC, if the CHADVAS score is 2 or above. And consider a DOAC for men with AF and a CHADVAS score of 1. Apixaban, Dabigatran, Edoxaban and Rivaroxaban are suitable options. We will not offer anticoagulation for lower scores, that is a CHADVASC score of 0 for men or 1 for women. We will not withhold anticoagulation solely because of a person's age or their risk of falls. In people with new onset AF, if there is uncertainty over the precise time since onset, we will offer oral anticoagulation. If DOACs cannot be given, we will offer a vitamin K antagonist like warfarin. However, for those already taking warfarin, we will discuss the option of switching treatment and we will definitely not offer aspirin solely for the stroke prevention in AF.
for guidance on antiplatelet therapy for people who have had a myocardial infarction and are having anticoagulation, there are separate guidelines. We will not cover it here because the decision should rest with their cardiologist in secondary care. In primary care, we also need to look at the arrhythmia management. For most patients with AF, a rate control treatment is offered as the first line approach. This can involve using a standard beta blocker, but not sotalol, or a rate limiting calcium channel blocker such as daltazem or verapamil. The choice of medication depends on the person's symptoms, heart rate, comorbidities, and personal preferences. In some cases, digoxin may be considered as an alternative for those with non-paroxysmal AF who do little or no exercise, or when other rate-limiting drugs options are not suitable. However, we will not offer amiodarone for long-term rate control. If there is concomitant heart failure, we will follow the guidelines for chronic heart failure in managing their condition. We will need to arrange follow-up within one week of starting treatment to review symptoms, heart rate and blood pressure. In terms of patient education, we will need to provide information to the patient on AF and stroke awareness, about flying, advising that there are no flying restrictions provided that the AF is stable, driving, advising that they must inform the driving licensing agency and to check that their driving insurance still covers them. Right, after having looked at the diagnosis and the initial treatment, we're now going to look at the regular follow-up or reviews that are needed. It is recommended to review patients at least annually if the symptoms are controlled or more frequently if necessary. During the reviews, we will do the following. We will check for symptoms of AF at rest and during exercise and assess the heart rate. Criteria for rate control vary with age and it is suggested that ventricular rate should be controlled between 60 and 80 beats per minute at rest and between 90 and 115 beats per minute during moderate exercise. We will review the patient's rate control drugs and if the person cannot tolerate it, we will prescribe an alternative. For people taking rate control treatment who have persistent symptoms of AF, or a fast heart rate, we will consider one of the following options. If they're not taking the maximum drug dose, we will consider increasing the dose. If they're taking the maximum drug dose, we will consider combination treatment with any two of the following drugs, a beta blocker, digoxin or daltazem. We will seek specialist advice before prescribing daltazem with a beta blocker because bradycardia, atrioventricular block, asystole or sudden death can occur with concurrent use. If symptoms are not controlled by a combination treatment, we will refer to a cardiologist promptly, that is to be seen within four weeks. For people who have received a rhythm control treatment in secondary care, who have recurrent or persistent symptoms, we will refer back to a cardiologist for further assessment. We will also reassess the person's stroke risk using CHAT-VASC and the bleeding risk using Orbit at least annually. Stroke risk should also be routinely reviewed when a person reaches the age of 65 or if at any age they develop diabetes, heart failure, peripheral arterial disease, coronary heart disease, stroke, TIAs or systemic thromboembolism. 
for people not taking an anticoagulant, we will offer treatment if they have a CHATVAS score of 2 or more, and we will consider offering anticoagulation to men with a CHATVAS score of 1. For people taking an anticoagulant, we will not stop anticoagulation solely because AF is no longer detectable. We will base the decision on reassessment of CHATVASC and orbit. We will review and manage any modifiable risk factors for bleeding. We will review anticoagulant therapy, including possible new drug interactions, and we will do a full blood count, liver and renal function tests, at least annually, or more frequently if clinically indicated. For people with persistent poor anticoagulation control on warfarin, we will consider switching to a DOAC, such as apixaban, edoxaban, dabigatran or rivaroxaban. For people taking rhythm control drugs that were initiated in secondary care, we will carry out any required monitoring. For amiodarone, for example, this includes six monthly blood tests and an annual ECG and dye examination. And we will assess and manage their cardiovascular risk and any possible complications of AF, including stroke, heart failure and reduced quality of life. Right, this is the summary of the guideline. Now let's have a look at some fictitious clinical cases created by ChatGPT. The first patient is Emily Thompson, who is 62 years old and has a blood pressure of 130 over 80. Emily has a history of hypertension and hypercholesterolemia. Additionally, Emily was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes five years ago and is currently on the following medication. Amlodipine 5 mg daily, atorvastatin 20 mg daily and metformin 1000 mg twice a day. Emily consults you because she experiences occasional episodes of palpitations and breathlessness. She also has reported intermittent episodes of dizziness over the last few months. She has not experienced any stroke or TIA symptoms. What should we do? We should suspect AF and therefore we should perform manual pulse palpation. This detects an irregular pulse. What diagnostic steps should we take? We should do an ECG to confirm the presence of AF. However, if paroxysmal AF is suspected but undetected by the initial ECG, an ambulatory ECG monitor, event recorder or other ECG technology should be used. This will allow continuous monitoring over a specific period of time to capture intermittent or infrequent episodes of AF. We should also consider this if the manual pulse palpation was normal but will remain suspicious. The second patient is John Anderson, who is 65. His blood pressure is 140 over 90 and his pulse rate is 96. He has a history of hypertension, hypercholesterolemia and valvular heart disease. John is currently taking an ACE inhibitor, lisinopril 20mg daily, a calcium channel blocker, amlodipine 10mg daily, anestatin, atovastatin 20mg daily. John presents with symptoms of AF that have only just started in the last day or two, and AF has been confirmed with an ECG. How should we manage him? We should firstly assess for signs and symptoms of hemodynamic instability, for example a rapid pulse of 150 beats per minute or more, and low blood pressure, for example a systolic blood pressure of 90 or less. If he exhibits any of the symptoms, he should be admitted urgently. 
Luckily, John's pulse rate is 96 and his blood pressure is 140 over 90. However, we should get urgent secondary care advice given that John's AF seems to have been present for less than 48 hours. This is recommended to address the management of both the arrhythmia and anticoagulation. John may or may not be suitable for electrical or pharmacological cardioversion and initial anticoagulation may involve the use of heparin. So this may still require sending him to the emergency department to be fully assessed. In addition, we should expect the cardiologist to carry out further assessment of possible underlying causes of AF. Since John has a history of alveolar heart disease, it is likely that this is contributing to his AF. A transthoracic echocardiogram can be considered to assess any valvular heart disease progression in addition to a chest X-ray and basic blood tests including a full blood count, liver and renal function tests, thyroid function tests, calcium, magnesium and glucose levels. In summary, the recommended management approach includes evaluating signs of hemodynamic instability, assessing for underlying causes, cardiac, respiratory, and systemic, conducting necessary tests like ECG, chest X-ray, blood tests and echocardiograms and seeking urgent secondary care advice given that the onset of AF is within 48 hours. The third patient is Peter Richardson who is 76. His blood pressure is 135 or 85 and his pulse rate is 78. Peter has a medical history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia and an MI 10 years ago. Peter takes lisinopril 10 mg daily, atorvastatin 80 mg daily, and clopidogrel 75 mg daily as part of his post-MI regime. He has been found to have AF on incidental screening confirmed by an ECG. He has no symptoms and initial assessment includes a normal chest X-ray and blood tests. A non-urgent echocardiogram has been requested as a precaution but he does not have a heart murmur or symptoms of cardiac failure, so there's a low suspicion of structural heart disease. Because of his age and being asymptomatic, after discussion and agreement with the patient, and perhaps after discussion with secondary care, it was decided that he would be managed in primary care and that referral for rhythm control or cardioversion was not appropriate for him. How should we assess and manage him further? We should assess his stroke risk using CHATVASC and his score is 4 because of age of 75, hypertension and treatment and previous vascular disease, indicating a high risk of stroke. Using the orbit bleeding risk score, his score is 2 because of age of 74 and taking antiplatelet therapy, so his risk of bleeding is low. Considering his CHATVASC score of 4 and low bleeding risk, Peter is a suitable candidate for anticoagulation. We should always consider modifiable risk factors for bleeding, but given that clopidogrel was given for his previous MI, we should seek the advice from his cardiologist about this. As Peter's exact time of onset of AF is uncertain, oral anticoagulation is recommended. We have the options of apixaban, dabigatran, edoxaban and rivaroxaban, and we decide to prescribe apixaban 5 mg twice a day. If there was a problem with the DOAC, a vitamin K antagonist such as warfarin could be an alternative. 
We should also start him on rate control treatments such as a beta blocker or a rate limiting calcium channel blocker. Given his previous history of MI, he started on a beta blocker. Because he has no symptoms and his blood pressure is normal, we could give him a small dose of bisoprolol 1.25 mg daily, which can be increased as necessary. We should arrange a follow-up appointment within one week of starting treatment to assess his symptoms, heart rate and blood pressure. We should also offer patient education, including information about AF and stroke awareness, flying, saying that there's no restriction if AF is stable, driving, advising him to inform the driving licensing agency and to check his insurance cover, and the need for annual reviews. The fourth and final patient is Sarah Johnson, aged 62. Her blood pressure is 130 over 80 and her medical history includes known atrial fibrillation. Although the EAF was diagnosed five years ago, recently she has been experiencing some AF symptoms in the form of intermittent palpitations and occasional shortness of breath. She also has a history of hypertension and well-controlled type 2 diabetes. Sarah had a TIA two years ago, but has not experienced any recurrent episodes since then. Her medication includes a beta blocker, atenolol, 100mg daily, to control her heart rate, which is the maximum recommended daily dose. She also takes an anticoagulant, rivaroxaban, 20mg daily, to reduce the risk of stroke. In addition, Sarah takes metformin 500mg twice a day for her diabetes and amlodipine 5mg daily for blood pressure control. She comes to see you for her annual review. What should we do during this review? During the annual review, Sarah's symptoms of AF should be assessed, both at rest and during exercise. Her heart rate should be monitored to ensure rate control. It is recommended to maintain her ventricular rate between 60 and 80 beats per minute at rest and between 90 and 115 beats per minute during moderate exercise. The review should include an assessment of Sarah's medications and since she is experiencing persistent symptoms of AF, despite taking the maximum dose of atenolol, we should consider combination treatment with an additional rate control drug such as digoxin or dantiazem. Sarah is still active and does regular exercise and therefore digoxin is not felt to be appropriate. Therefore, before switching her amlodipine to daltasem and prescribing it with a beta blocker, specialist advice should be sought due to the potential complications. Sarah's stroke and bleeding risk should also be reassessed using CHAT-VASC and Orbit. This assessment should be conducted annually, but particularly when she reaches the age of 65 or if she develops any new conditions related to cardiovascular health. As Sarah already has a high stroke risk with a CHAT-VASC score of 4 because of her previous DIA, hypertension and being female, she should continue her anticoagulation treatment with rivaroxaban. We should monitor it, check in for possible new drug interactions and conducting blood tests including a full blood count, liver and renal function tests. These assessments should occur at least annually but more frequently if clinically indicated. Sarah's modifiable risk factors for bleeding should also be reviewed and managed. Her blood pressure is well controlled, she is not abusing alcohol and there are no other concerns in terms of anemia or drug interactions.
If Sarah were taking rhythm control drugs initiated in secondary care, for example amiodarone, we should arrange the required monitoring. In conclusion, the management of AF requires a comprehensive approach that addresses both the underlying causes and the patient's individual risk factors. We have discussed the importance of detection and diagnosis, the assessment of stroke and bleeding risks, management strategies and regular reviews. Please keep in mind that this is only a summary and my interpretation of the guideline. We have come to the end of this episode. I hope that you have found it useful. Thank you for listening and goodbye.